When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Thursday, November 3rd. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Uh, shocked that we're in November. How are, how are you? Yes, I, uh, yes, it is shocking. And also Minnesota has had a like unseasonably warm streak for about, I don't know, the last five or six days. So like one day it was like 70 degrees, which is obviously like bad news for the planet, but it's it's been really nice for me. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that they uh, are spotting armadillos in Southern Illinois, which is not great, but also like, oh, wow, armadillos. So um, yeah. Although, don't they carry, like, an STD or something? I have no idea. I've never heard that. If that's wrong, then I'm sorry, armadillos. But I think... (laughs) I'm spreading rumors about you. I think it's right. But anyway, don't touch an armadillo. I think that's fair. Yeah, we went trick-or-treating on Monday night. And, like, last year for trick-or-treating, I was, like, in long underwear and, like, my full winter coat and boots. And this year, like, normal, like, spring jacket and no gloves. It was... It was great and terrible. (laughs) Silver linings. Yeah, it's been in the 70s this week. I've been wearing t-shirts and I don't know. I do like a, I like a a fall chill in the air. So I'm Mm -hmm. kind of like, let's, let's get back to like 40s and 50s, please. Yeah, I think our cold streak is starting. This is, it's Thursdays. I think it's starting like tomorrow or Saturday. It's going to go back down to normal November and it's time, but also it'll be sad. Because then we're going to have daylight savings time this weekend. I guess by the time people are listening, it will have already passed. But then it will be dark all the time. Oh, I forgot that was the side effect of that. Because we gain an hour. Yeah, we fall back. But then it just, it gets dark so early. (laughs) Did I tell you my daylight savings time ritual that I used to do every year? No. At 2 a.m., I think that is when it hits. Or maybe it's, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I would play... Back in Time by Huey Lewis in the News, <laughs> made famous by the movie Back to the Future, and just do a little dance where I was sitting, which was usually in bed because it was very late. But yeah. one year, I had to go to the emergency room because of a kidney stone, and I know, and uh, the nurses were very, very nice, and I was lying in the emergency room in pain, and I was like, hello. Because it's daily savings time, do you mind if at 2 a.m. I play Back in Time on my phone by Huey Lewis in the news? <laughs> they said that was fine. I do not think that I have ever been up at 2 a.m. when the, like, fallback happens. Oh, I would purpose – like, that is – I would stay up to do that. Oh, I, like, sleep way too much to invest my – I could never do that. It is literally the only time – 
like in the year. And I was thinking like maybe if you're flying, you could stay back in time. But that's like mm-hmm. such a slow change, you know? Yeah. What I mean? yeah. As opposed to instantaneous <laughs> back in time. I appreciate that. That is a great story and a great tradition. Are you going to do it this year? No, I'm old now. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> Don't be an idiot. I'm old. That's for the younger Alice. Oh, very true. Uh, so we have like one small piece of business before we get into the episode. Um, our next episode, so coming out, I think November 22nd, is going to be our holiday gift guide episode. So uh, if you are looking for a book recommendation for a present for someone else, or you want some recommendations for books that you can put on your own uh, holiday gift list uh, to get as presents from uh, people, we would be happy to take your requests and make some suggestions. So uh, if you are interested, uh, we would love for you to email us your request uh, with little details about who you're requesting for and what kinds of things they like uh, by Wednesday, November 16th. And you can also, you can email that to forreal at riotnewmedia.com. So that's forreal, F-O-R-R-E-A-L at riotnewmedia.com. Uh, and we will also put that in the show notes. Uh, so send us your requests by Wednesday the 16th and we will answer them on our uh, Holiday Youth Guide episode. And with that, we'll hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Tor Books. So if you are a fan of epic fantasy, if you're a fan of Scott Lynch and or Joe Abercrombie, but you want something a little different, you want a hero who's like a bit of a mess, then The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan is for you in its Academy dropout slash disgraced noble heir Lacan Cordova's life is in shambles. All he's got going for him is one, he is a card sharp of considerable skill and two, a lot of maybe potentially a little too much wine. Those are, you know, those are the positives. So when the bizarre murder of his father robs him of even the off chance of redemption, Lacan decides to make amends another way. He's going to unravel the mystery behind the killing, even if it takes him to the underbelly of Sophrona, a city of danger, secrets, and merchant princes. Finding the truth is one thing. Finding the truth and staying alive is like a whole other thing. So make sure to check out The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan on sale May 7th. And thanks again to Tor Books for sponsoring this episode. 
All right. So uh, this week we have, for nonfiction in the news, we have three uh, news stories to talk about briefly. So the first one is that this feels like extremely big news to me. Prince Harry has announced the title of his memoir and the release date. All right. So uh, Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, will be out January 10th, 2023. Uh, And so this memoir is uh, the first book in his multi-book deal with Penguin Random House. Uh, It was supposed to come out uh, late this year, uh, but it looks like it was pushed a little bit, maybe because of the Queen's death and how people uh, think that the the book might uh, affect the royal family. Um, we're linked to a New York Times article that's called uh, Prince Harry's Memoir is Due in January. How Explosive Will It Be? Question mark. And so it's uh, talking uh, the article interviews like royal experts and publishing industry insiders uh, who have speculation about the book. Um, some people speculating that uh, his comments about the monarchy might uh, further destabilize that institution. Um, other people wondering about whether this might increase the rift Harry has with his family. But like hilariously, nobody knows. Uh, and the article notes that Penguin Random House and both uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, his wife, have uh, declined to comment. So it's a whole like long article that is quoting a bunch of people who have no idea, <laughs> which I find really funny. So yeah, Prince Harry's memoir coming out in January. That feels like like big news in the world of nonfiction. Really big news. I, I feel like yeah. it was everywhere the day it was announced. Yeah. So do you think that this book will sell more books than Michelle Obama's memoir? No. No? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I d- um, th- while this has gotten a lot of buzz, I feel like Michelle Obama's book was literally like, uh, you got to capture that mom demographic. And True. I don't, I guess I, I guess I haven't really chatted with moms about their <laughs> love or just interest in Prince Harry. And maybe mm-hmm. they are all going to buy the book. But yeah. I don't know. But I, I bet they all did read Becoming by Michelle Obama. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. I, you know, I also do not think it's going to sell more books than Michelle Obama's did because like, so Michelle Obama, I think one of the reasons that books hold so much is because like she had been in the public eye for eight years as first lady, but like never said anything. And you just like, knew that she had things to say and and it was so exciting to get her to hear like from her own own voice about her story and how she was like responding to things that had happened to her and I feel like Prince Harry has some of that same like he he's never gotten to tell his own story and like you've watched from afar like all this stuff happening and like what's going on there you know (laughs) yes I don't know. I have, I have no idea. I don't know, I don't know why that like, comparison came to mind, those two. But anyway, we'll know in January what's going to happen. I feel like I'm probably going to listen to that one on audiobook. Oh, do you think he's going to do the audiobook version? Oh, I did not even – I well, that would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, but like it feels like it would take so much time to do. Yeah, but like what else is he doing? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he's got his family and stuff and he's doing – Stuff for Netflix and Megan has a podcast. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, we'll find out more in January. <laughs> our second news story is uh, a sobering or a sadder one. Uh, Julie Powell, or, so uh, the author of the book Julie and Julia, 
which was a blog and then was turned into a movie. Um, she passed away uh, this week uh, at the age of 49 uh, from cardiac arrest. Uh, she became famous uh, starting in 2002 when she started a blog where she was going to cook every recipe in Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. So she was going to do like 536 recipes in 365 days and then chronicled that. And eventually that experience was turned into a book. And then that book was optioned into a movie starring Amy Adams and Meryl Streep. And so the article we'll link to is from the Washington Post. And it's all about how her blog kind of changed food writing and um, shifted it from being a lot more formal to kind of the more informal. Chatty. Chatty, yeah, chatty is the good word, um, kind of food writing that we have today, which I think is a thing that was happening kind of in a lot of different industries, right, as blogs became really popular in the mid to late 20, 2000s, 2010s. But the, the article kind of explores that, which I thought was really interesting. So I don't really have a lot else to say about this. Like, I, it's sad news, but it's interesting to think about her influence. Yeah, for sure. I wonder, in terms of timeline, like, because you know when, like, blogs started becoming books? But mm -hmm. I wonder where her book was in that trend. Yeah, the movie was made in 2009. So I think the book must have come out maybe like 2007-ish. I guess I don't remember for sure. Okay. But yeah, kind of kind of early, I think, in that like book to or blog to book to movie kind of thing. Oh, no, here we go. 2005 is when the book came out. Oh, well, that does seem early then. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting that she was kind of ahead of a lot of these other trends that we've seen in in the world of writing and publishing and that kind of thing. Yeah. Our last news story is once again, we return to the devil in the white city <laughs> limited series. Kim and I have decided we're not going to announce any other news about this series until it is officially like either out or about to come out. When they're like, it's out next week. Then we'll be like, great. Everybody. It's out next week. <laughs> Uh, so Keanu Reeves, who we previously announced would be starring in The Devil in the White City, is exiting uh, Devil in the White City, and Hulu has no comment. So <laughs> we'll have that article linked in the show notes. Yeah, I, this is like all of this news has just really like killed my interest in this uh, project. <laughs> it's been for forever. Did you see they have obviously like not started filming, and then they're currently saying it'll be out in 2024. Yeah, no, it's... No. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it uh, uh, in the future. So that is uh, nonfiction in the news. We'll link to all those articles. Uh, and uh, that's that. So uh, next we'll jump into new nonfiction, which is books that are out recently or coming out soon that we think you might be interested in. So my first pick is White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do It Better by Regina Jackson and Soraya Rao, which came out November 1st from Penguin Books. And so um, the two authors are the founders of an organization called Race to Dinner, uh, Race Number Two Dinner, um, which is an organization that helps facilitate conversations about racism among white women. So uh, encouraging white women to talk about racism and white supremacy. And so they have, um, through that work, noticed this white women's tendency to be nice or like appear nice and try to be perfect and then kind of letting that niceness and perfection get into in the way of them actually doing real work around anti-racism. And so uh, this book really tries to get at some of that, like stop being nice and do the work. So they 
pose questions like, how has being nice helped Black women, Indigenous women, and other women of color? Um, Has niceness actually helped you in your efforts to end sexism? Has niceness helped you (laughs) reach economic uh, equality with white men? Um, And so really tries to interrogate this idea that like niceness is the epitome of value that uh, white women should project out into the world. And so um, they look at nine different, uh, specifically look at nine different aspects of like white women's behavior. So tone policing to weaponizing tears and things like that, that are part of uh, upholding white supremacy and then tries to show how you don't need to do that anymore. So this book is, it's a slim little book, but it has a lot in it about trying to bring white women kind of forward in their work around anti-racism, which I think is really important, obviously. Um, And so Um, I appreciate kind of that specific call out because I do think there is something that women take on that they don't need to around being nice and moving away from that in some really important ways. So that is White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better by Regina Jackson and Soraya Rao. Oh, I do feel very called out by that Uh, in terms of prioritizing, you know, quote unquote, niceness. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. In my daily interactions. Oh, shoot. All right. Well, that's going on the list. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I have a very different pick, as usual, for my first new book. It is Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge by Ted Conover. Ted Conover previously won the National Book Critics Circle Award for New Jack Guarding Sing Sing. Mm-hmm. And uh, here is instead looking at the flats dwellers in the San Luis Valley of Colorado. And if you're like, I don't know where that is. It's basically like part of it is shared by New Mexico. It's like South Central Colorado. And it's where you want to live if you don't want to be around people and want to be off the grid. <laughs> You have, like, various motives. Some people want to grow marijuana. Some people lived in the city and did not enjoy it and decided to go the absolute opposite route. Some people are really anti-government and uh, pro-gun and are like, I just want to live the way I want to live. But so he goes out. He goes out to the San Luis Valley and just starts talking to people and finding out, you know, why did you move here? Uh, what were your motives? What is life actually like here? Um, he did this by volunteering for La Puente, which uh, provides services to rural residents. And I just like, it's just fascinating. You know, anything where it's like people living extremely differently from like the way mm-hmm. that you see life in like the daily. It's just like, yeah, yeah. Like, tell me all of your secrets. Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you how do you encounter life on the daily? Um, so I was psyched to see this uh, coming out. And I think that the San Luis Valley came up recently in a book I was reading about Mormonism. Do you remember that book? I, just, I, I did read it in its entirety, and I don't remember the title at all. But it was that book about the Mormons who were living in Mexico and then it was like, they were like a Mormon offshoot. Yeah, I do. And I can't remember the title. Right. Uh, and then I think some of them, because they ended up having, a lot of them had to leave Mexico because they're the ones who were, uh, they were attacked by a uh, cartel. Mm-hmm. Some of them, I think, went to the San Luis Valley because it's like just very hard to, for law enforcement to get out there. 
Mm-hmm. And so they, there was just not much of a presence. So I think it had come up before by people who were like, I do not want to be scrutinized uh, by the government. And so having it pop up again uh, in this separate book, I think is interesting. But yeah, again, that is Cheap Land, Colorado, Off Gritters at America's Edge by Ted Conover. That sounds fascinating. And like, I really like Ted Conover as an author. Um, I read New Jack men, I don't know, like 12 years ago, I think. But he also did a book called Rolling Nowhere, where he um, traveled like um, people who jump on and off trains. And he like did that for a period of time to like report on it. Um, so he is one of the authors who is really like on the leading edge of like this immersive, um, in-depth, uh, experiential journalism. Um, so I am really excited about kind of this kind of angle that he's looking at like this is a really fascinating community to try and like embed in and tell stories from i think um oh and i looked up the book it's the colony faith and blood in a promised land by sally denton yeah and it was really good yes so lots of off the grid people also not to spoiler this next pick but did we just switch picks for this particular section (laughs) i i was gonna say i really think that like Partially, I picked this one because I wanted to hear what you had to say about it. But, like, these are very much, like, uh, other people's choices, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, my next pick is called The Grim Keys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family by Carrie K. Greenidge. It comes out November 8th from LiveWrite. And so, um, Carrie Greenidge is uh, assistant professor of uh, studies in race, colonialism, and diaspora at Tufts University. And so, this book is described as a counter-narrative of the abolitionist Grimke sisters that reclaims the forgotten Black members of their family. Uh, so, uh, Sarah and Angelina Grimke were... Um, They're, like, very famous women in American history. I recognize their names because you've talked about them before. Um, And so they are, like, probably best known for, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Alice, um, rejecting their lives uh, from living on a plantation in South Carolina and then instead becoming um, anti-slavery activists in uh, the North. And so they wrote anti-slavery pamphlets and were, like, very big in that community. But this book looks at... Uh, their family, but shifting away from those sisters onto the black members of the Grimke family and trying to understand uh, that family's struggle for racial justice and gender equality. So the fact that they, the two of them had black relatives is because of um, the fact that white slave owners often uh, sexually assaulted and impregnated their black slaves. And so their older brother, Henry, had three sons with one of the women he owned, a woman named Nancy Weston. And so those brothers who were half black kind of had exploits and experiences in the North. Um, two of them became prominent members of the black elite in the post-Civil War era, um, and others had other experiences. And so this book centers on the black women of the family from Nancy Weston to um, others. So yeah, it's a big family saga that stretches kind of across centuries and across the country to look at the various black Grimke members of the family. And so it says, most strikingly, she indicts the white Grimke sisters for their racial paternalism. They could envision the end of slavery, but they could not imagine black equality. When their black nephews did not adhere to the image of the kneeling and eternally grateful slave, they were cruel and relentlessly judgmental, an emblem of the limits of progressive white racial politics, which is a lot. So that is 
The Grimkeys, A Legacy of Slavery in an American Family by Carrie K. Greenidge. And now, Alice, I would love to hear what you have to say about this. <laughs> I Literally, when you were talking about the failings of the Grimkeys, of Sarah and Angelina, I was sitting here in like mentally being like, not Angelina, <laughs> just because... <laughs> <laughs> um, Angelina is the one who, when the Philadelphia, um, I think it was the Anti-Slavery Society, had just built their new hall in Philadelphia uh, for their uh, abolition hall, and it was surrounded by a mob. Angelina had all the white women link up arms with the black women so to protect them because they knew the mob wouldn't attack white women and had them leave the hall together. And then the mob like burned down the hall. But I was like, oh my gosh, Angelina Grimke is using her privilege for good. And I guess then we find out further things. They really were, for their time, they were really, they did a lot of really good things. And the fact that they were living in a, like on a Mm -hmm. plantation that had enslaved people that were owned by their family uh, and they still came to this sort of realization that this is wrong and they not only did that but left their family as women mm -hmm. in like the early 1800s like that's amazing and I'm I guess I'm unsurprised that they also were holding on to some very bad entrenched ideas of the time right I think that this is one of those situations which like both things can be true right like they can yeah. be abolitionists who did a lot of really good work and they can also have had some family relationships that we would perhaps not be as proud of today or or not want to talk about in the same way yeah for sure and like honestly when when you were talking about the focus on the black members of the family it immediately reminded me of the hemmingses of mm -hmm. monticello by um oh wait is it monticello yeah i think it's pronounced that way. uh illinois has a a town called monticello because <laughs> uh. we will not pronounce it the italian way uh <laughs> But um, The Hemings is a Monticello by Annette Gordon-Reed, which I recently finished and is, you know, all about not just Sally Hemings, but her mother and grandmother and brothers and just various family members and how they interacted with Thomas Jefferson. So here I find this interesting because instead of Jefferson, who did, I don't know, I just, it's, it feels like the Grimke sisters, especially, you would expect more of. So to see mm. their interactions with their family members is like maybe even more interesting. But yeah, so basically I'm I'm very intrigued by this book. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, add, adding another to the list. Two for two, Kim. What a day for me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any final notes on it or is that? No, that, that was all. Okay. Again, switching tacks here. Uh, my next pick is Among Tigers, Fighting to Bring Back Asia's Big Cats by K. Ulis Karanth. Uh, the main fact from this that is like the shocker is that today, 10 times more tigers live in captivity than survive in the wild. Uh, and like, wow. I feel personally torn about this because I feel like if I encountered a tiger in the wild, <laughs> I would be so scared. <laughs> um so i'm like do we want tigers in the wild and to that i say yes alice of course we do um so kaolis karanth has been working for over 50 years to bring back wild tigers um who are uh very much struggling uh for survival in india and that's kind of their main location right now we used to have tigers in many more areas and now we have fewer than 5,000 wild tigers. Uh, in Among Tigers, Karanth talks about how we can grow that population 10 times or more in just a few decades. And not only uh, will that save tigers, but also other uh, animals that exist in their ecosystem 
which they talk about from the freezing forests of Siberia to the tropics of India, which is, uh, oh gosh, I'm so bad at geography. I was going to say, that's quite a span. And then I was like, Mm -hmm. wait, they're kind of in the same landmass. But um, Karanth was previously the director of the Wildlife Conservation Society's India program, and uh, he pioneered the use of like camera traps in hmm. population density studies of large wild mammals in India, which is super cool. So now he is based in Karnataka, India, and doing this work there. I mean, this is one of those things, right, where like, if we don't have tigers in the wild, <laughs> what... What do we have, really? Because it's it's that chain where it's like, okay, so you have tigers, and then these other animals, like the tigers, keep the population in check, and then other mm-hmm. one, and then like everything is like very balanced <laughs> in mm-hmm. a very particular way. And so someone needs to care about everything. Kalos Karath cares about tigers, the majestic beasts of the jungle, and I am excited that he is saving them. And also, don't keep tigers as pets. Don't keep them in a zoo in the south of, of like, uh, the United States. Mm-hmm. Just don't don't keep tigers. Sorry, I couldn't watch Tiger King because it made me too upset for yeah, the Yeah, no, I never watched it either. Um, so the fact that this is, like, not even just a push for, like, oh, like, you know, yeah, we shouldn't be having tigers, like, maybe in captivity, but also, hey, we need to, like, up their wild population – Mm-hmm. It, you know, joking aside from my intro, this is very important. So uh, the book is Among Tigers, Fighting to Bring Back Asia's Big Cats by K. Ulis Karanth. Excellent pick. That sounds very interesting. I don't I don't have anything to say except I agree with all of your assessments. Go Tigers! <laughs> all right. So with that, we uh, let's hear from our second sponsor. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. 
Ella assures her that she's fine. Partying hard is what it takes. But with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for new talent for We Deserve Monuments. And We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023. So suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. All right. So uh, for this month or this week's theme, uh, we wanted to recognize uh, Native American Heritage Month or Indigenous Peoples Month, uh, which is uh, recognized every November. So uh, we wanted to talk about some books that you could read uh, by uh, Native American or Indigenous authors. So uh, my first pick is a memoir called Heartberries by Therese Marie Melhot, uh, which came out in uh, 2018. So this is a woman or a, a memoir about a woman's coming of age uh, on the Seabird Island Band in the Pacific Northwest. So the author survived a extremely dysfunctional childhood. Um, I haven't really gotten deep into that part of it in the book, um, so I can't really give you any like clear content warnings, but I have to imagine there are quite a few. Um, and so she, after surviving this uh, childhood, finds herself hospitalized and she has a diagnosis of both post-traumatic stress disorder and bipolar two disorder. And so she, um, one of the techniques that she has given to try and help her manage these mental illnesses and move forward through some of this is to write. And so she starts to try to write her way out of this trauma. And so she, the the book, which is very slim, um, very, like, very sparse, I think. She writes about her mother, who was a social worker and an activist who um, fell for prisoners, about her reconciling with her father, who is both uh, abusive and also a brilliant artist, um, and eventually was killed, and writing about how it is, what it means to love someone while also, like, being deeply full of shame. Uh, And so, uh, it's a, a poetic book. It's a lot about like memory and how we how we remember different situations and different contexts about like kind of finding her voice and like finding her story through all of these other experiences. Um, and it's uh, it's very intense, but uh, it is very it is very good. Um, and I think just gets at a lot of different experiences and interestingly around like the PTSD and the mental illness parts of it too. So uh, that is Heartberries, a memoir by Charisse Marie Melhot. I keep hearing about that book and it does sound hard, but I have only heard good things about it. I know. I have not heard anyone who didn't like it or who, di- who didn't really um, like admire it as a, a really beautiful book. Okay. Um. So my, okay. So Indigenous Peoples Day that, uh, or month, sorry, is specific normally to the U.S., um, there is an Indigenous Peoples Day that happens uh, usually in June for Canada. But I feel like we in America don't really hear anything about the Indigenous Peoples of Canada. And they're Mm -hmm. right there (laughs) and uh, have been in the news for various sort of uh, – it was either this year or last year that it was – they found out about all of the – deaths at the schools for like them up in Canada and it was like coming out more and more and then of course that started coming mm-hmm. out more in the US and I just I just feel like it's very linked and we have this you know kind of like government decided upon border between our uh, mm-hmm. countries but yeah 
So I wanted to do this book, which is This Place, 150 Years Retold. It has over 20 authors and contributors. And it is an anthology of comics that features the work of Indigenous creators who are retelling the history of Canada, which is so Mm -hmm. cool. And uh, it uses fantasy and magical realism and just tells a lot of stories of um, different people throughout the last 150 years in Canada history. It's, I would say, um, age-wise, I was looking at it, it's probably like... How old are children? It's probably like, <laughs> I was going to say like junior high, probably. And uh, there's some like more difficult things. One of the stories is about Jack Fiddler, who I am not going to get this right, but is also known as Jawuno Gijigo Galba. And he's in, he was an Anishinaabe shaman who uh, was up on murder charges and his trial marked they started imposing canadian law on these sucker people and until then again i'm going to try this jawuno gijigo galbo's people had been among the last aboriginal peoples living in north america completely under their own law and customs so this trial like marked this huge thing and this was in 1906 Uh, oh and his name by the way means he who stands in the southern sky But it's just, uh, so it's got all of these stories from all of these different authors, which in and of itself is, like, super cool. And then you get different illustrations. Uh, They show, like, indigenous wonderworks and psychic battles and time travel. And uh, there's also a timeline of related historical events. And then there's cited sources in case, you know, people want to read further about it. So, uh, again, this is This Place, 150 Years Retold. And check it out. It's really cool. That does sound really cool. I love it. A beautifully illustrated book. Yeah. So, yeah. Excellent pick. Um, My second pick is also a memoir because I'm in a space right now where, like, serious nonfiction is very hard for me, but, like, memoirs are really working. So um, I picked two of them. So uh, the second memoir I picked is called Dog Flowers, a memoir and archive by Danielle Geller, uh, which actually came out in April of this year. The book opens with the the author getting a call that her mother is in the hospital and and is is dying. Um, And she, at that point, had not spoken to her mother in, I want to say it was like six months. They were estranged. She um, was taken away from her mother when she was a child. Like, her mother was an alcoholic, and they didn't really have a a really solid relationship. And so she is uh, in her early 20s and has to go down to Florida to be with her mother as she's put into hospice uh, and when she gets there her she discovers that like her mom who had been homeless off and on throughout her life had sort of her whole life packed into these eight suitcases in her partner's closet and so she goes through these suitcases uh, most of them don't really have anything interesting in them but then one is filled with diaries just all of this ephemera her, her mother's diaries a bunch of photos um, a bunch of letters undeveloped film uh, disposable cameras that hadn't been updated jewelry all sorts of things. And so she takes this suitcase of her mother's like life home and um, after like letting it sit for a while, decides that she's going to go through it and try to understand it. And so um, she starts to like uncover the story of her mother's life that she r- had no idea about because they had been estranged for so much of it. And so the book is her 
sharing her own personal like childhood story and, and coming of age story and also what she's able to reconstruct about her mother's life through um through this this information and the people that she ends up speaking to and so it's a it's really beautifully done but the thing that's really cool about it is that um she has a a background as an archivist and so the book includes a lot of these like ephemera and photos and stuff and so she includes them as an archivist would include them. So like a, the picture and then notes about like where it was found and what's in the picture and the like material that some of these things were made out of. And so it's really, it's really fascinating because it has both this like very intimate quality of the memoir and then this sort of like removed quality of the archivist, like citations or notes, I guess. And I just really love the way that those things are playing against each other to try and like give a full picture of this relationship and her mother's life. So uh, that is Dog Flowers, a memoir and archive by Danielle Geller. Well, that does sound really good. Shoot, Kim. It's fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Stop picking good books. Uh, (laughs) Dog Flowers and Heartberries. Oh, yeah. I didn't notice that. That is nice. nice. Also, I like that you're like... I am picking memoirs, and I'm like, no, history. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) It's a good balance. You know, we all have our things. Yay. Okay. Um, My last pick is Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance by Nick Estes. Uh, Nick Estes is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe and co-founder of the Red Nation, which is an organization dedicated to Native liberation that mostly focuses on the resistance efforts of uh, the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota nations. And so in this history, it goes back uh, 200 years and talks about how this this like long history of indigenous resistance created the movement that said water is life uh which first of all the standing rock protests were six years ago which i know i was it's because i was thinking it was like 2016 oh gosh a lot has happened since then but that's when the protest first started, where there was like an encampment at the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota to block construction of the Dakota Access Oil Pipeline. And then this grew to be the largest indigenous protest movement in the 21st century. The people there were called water protectors, and they sort of were carrying forth this tradition. This is the point of the book, right? That we have been doing this for a long time. And he talks about the damming of the Missouri River, the massacre at Wounded Knee, uh, which was later occupied, uh, the American Indian Movement, and uh, indigenous recognition at the United Nations. So he, he talks about that history and then why and how the Dakota Access Pipeline protest emerged and sort of what we can do going forward And it's sort of like this history, but also uh, is frequently described as a manifesto, which I find Mm -hmm. interesting, just like pairing those two. But uh, I've seen at least one other book about Standing Rock, and this one um, I hadn't looked at before and was really psyched to find it. So uh, again, that is Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance by Nick Estes. 
That also sounds really good. I feel like there's some really good books out there that talk about an indigenous people and their connection to environmentalism and environmental movements and like protest through and protection of the environment. Yeah, we've we've talked about at least one in a previous podcast. Yeah, and I can't remember the title. Yeah, but I I know I didn't want to talk about it again because I was like, we've done that before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this one sounds really good. That's a great pick. So obviously there are many, many, many books we could have talked about for uh, Indigenous Peoples Month or Native American Heritage Month, but those are just a few to get you started. And um, you can check Book Riot for more because I know there are lists there. So uh, with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. So I... um, didn't read a single nonfiction book all the way through in October. So I'm going to talk about a, a fiction book instead uh, called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And so this is a book about uh, two, it's a story of a friendship over like a 20 to 30 year time span. So um, Sam and Zadie meet when they are tweens. They're both at a hospital, um, Sadie, because her sister is being treated for cancer, and Sam, because he was in a car accident and has to have a bunch of surgeries. And so they become friends over playing video games. And then the book follows them as they kind of come move in and out of each other's lives um, and become like partners and collaborators uh, developing video games. And so uh, it takes place sort of over the like the birth of the like video game industry in the United States and their kind of work on different games um, and how they kind of circle back around to one another over time. I just, it was so interesting and it was beautiful and I loved the characters and I loved some of the like inventive narrative techniques she tried and it's just as just it was, it was stunning and I finished it and I was like well this is the best book I will read probably this year and I had a book hangover for several days and it was it was just really good so tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin oh wow that was a real ringing endorsement for that which I am excited about because that's on my book club uh list for like future books that we're doing oh highly recommended I think it'd be a great book club discussion fantastic um, I am reading A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey by Jonathan Myberg. This is about the striated caracara, which lives, uh, i going to say the Falklands. <laughs> 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 I was just telling someone about this last night. I was like, I'm like a third through this book. I'm not positive where the bird lives. I... It's like the Falklands are like Tierra del Fuego, but I'm pretty sure it's the Falkland Islands. And it's that it was described as like, I think it was like a raven on like a like a hawk chassis. Like it's like a weird because it's a bird of prey, but they they all like kind of hang out together. They aren't solitary. They're really curious and like extremely smart. Like if you give it a problem for how to get Mm -hmm. food out of something, there was something where there was like a beer bottle on a spinning rod and there was food in the beer bottle and it had to like not only spin the beer bottle, but hold it in place and it figured it out. It, like, got it moving and then held it with its foot and then the thing fell out of the beer bottle. I was like, that's super cool. But they also, like, you know, like, kill lambs and stuff. So they're they're problems, but also brilliant birds. And the whole book is just talking about how cool they are, but how they've been threatened because sheep farmers don't like them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's it's really interesting. And not just because I am becoming more and more of a bird person as I get older. 
Uh, I think that other people would also be interested in this. So uh, it's A Most Remarkable Creature by Jonathan Myberg. And in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. Thank you, Jen. If you have a minute, we would love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so that people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.